the true imagination. To be human is to symbolize. All the higher animals have certain means of communication, but only humans do so via language, art, story, and symbolism. God has revealed himself to man in nature, in our humanity, in the Torah, and the subsequent scriptures, and of course, ultimately, in his incarnation. God's own holy imagination was at work in his action of creation. Our language is too weak in attempting to describe the inner workings of God's mind by using the word imagination in reference to him, because due to our fallen condition, our own concept, concepts of imagination uh, are damaged. We have spent a good deal of time so far in this study examining that fact and uh, hopefully coming to some conclusions that will be helpful in transcending uh, those weaknesses. But weak as it may be, we need to state that God himself operates in the holy imagination. And therefore, since man is made in his image and likeness, man too was meant to operate in that same level of creative power and purity. If we limit our definition of the imagination to mere fantasy or fancy or various true and false concepts of the mind of our own making or even merely to thinking up ideas, quote-unquote, we will resist the concept of God using his imagination because we will think we are somehow denigrating him by speaking in terms that we understand only about ourselves. But if we understand the scriptural self-revelation of God, we see that it is logical and evident that God formed in his mind what he wanted, spoke it into existence, and his Holy Spirit brought it forth into what we call the physical state of being. Yet this concept is dangerous if taken on its own apart from God's word and his Holy Spirit's direction. But he has set forth his will in his word clearly enough for us to be responsible to move with him into the use of a holy imagination. This is part of our restoration from the results of the fall. It's part of our redemption, our restored inheritance from the Father. Because of these truths, all other symbolic systems in human experience, whether from some religious system or from our own personal psyche, have to be measured for believers in the true God by the means of the Judaic Christian symbolic system. These images and symbols rooted in scripture and holy history are maps to reality. When the symbols fail, humanity fails too. That is, when the culture loses the symbolic system by willfully turning away from it, then the map is lost. Those who lose the map then flounder to find replacements, to find some way to fill the void. This means disintegration, devolution, and deviation from reality, which is insanity. Loss of true symbol and image does not ever mean that we are left with just an empty screen. It's not possible to have a mere blank if you're human, unless there's brain damage. Even then, it's not blank. Reality abhors a vacuum, 
as St. Gregory said, if we do not delight in higher things, we will most certainly delight in lower things. If a man loses his high vision of a woman, he will denigrate and degenerate into the low vision of her as a mere object of his appetite. Or if a country rejects the cross, the swastika waits in the wings. Symbols bind up reality for us. The symbols point to the spirit behind them. You would never want to use a plastic toy ring out of a Cracker Jack's box as an engagement ring, if you're sane. Why? Because the symbol points to the reality. In statecraft, the symbols matter. Obama is always careful to never speak from a platform where high and valued symbols of Christian heritage or even American heritage are present. To him, the symbols he values and wishes to convey his vision and spirit never include anything that honors Yahweh or Messiah. He knows, like all previous tyrants, that the symbols matter. Once upon a time, the great symbols and accompanying understanding of reality to which these symbols point gave mankind the track on which to move toward life and civilization in its most humane forms. The idea of God, the cosmos, of fatherhood and motherhood and family, the essence of masculine and feminine, answered ultimate questions. Where did we come from? Who are we? What are we? How are we to live, and where are we headed? The loss of these foundational symbols means a culture and its individual inhabitants are lost in the sea of unanswerable questions. The universe has been shrunken down to the size of each mere individual's dark and broken psyche. All men do what seems right to themselves. That's happened before in history, by the way. Attempts to fill the unlivable void with whatever lesser replacements we come up with leaves us floundering in our current milieu of existential pain, sexual and emotional confusion, relational devastation, violence, and death. The symbols do matter. For with the loss of right symbols, there is the loss of what it means to be human. The culture of death now properly imagines itself in visions of zombies and vampires, while real-life versions of those nightmare monsters manifest real-life destruction in the form of violence, immorality, and nihilism. Our streets are becoming a stage for the violent outworking of what the symbols celebrate. We can no more fix ourselves than a ditch can dig itself or a garden weed itself we're lost if left to ourselves. Only another from outside, greater than we are, can descend to us and re-symbolize us with reality. Otherwise, we're left to fend for ourselves against the unanswerable cries for meaning, satisfaction, order, and ultimate destiny. We become like the man falling swiftly towards the earth, but comforting himself on the way down by grabbing hold of his own belt strap and lifting up, as if that's going to save him from the impact below. We're hopeless without intervening, descending, revelatory grace. Thankfully, God 
is giving grace. He has come, descended to us, revealed himself and his purposes to us, and made the way for our restoration. The descent of the holy, which informs, feeds, and heals our imagination, is primarily accomplished through four basic avenues. The primary one, of course, is an encounter with God himself. The second one is our relationship with one another. The third is through nature. And the fourth is through the arts. We've spent a good deal of time in our previous studies on the first two. I want to stress more in our time together now the second two, nature and the arts, and how the Holy Spirit operates through them. At the end of the decade of the 1960s, the music group The Temptations sang to us, but it was just my imagination running away with me. Well, that's an appropriate idea of the imagination if all you're dealing with is temptation. Temptation is, among other things, the imagination offering that which is unreal or that which is illicit or that which has not been offered by God or that which has been offered by God but in another set of circumstances that we want to ignore and take things into our own control. But we need a larger definition of the imagination than that. Most dictionaries only offer definitions of the imagination from a merely human perspective. It's the, quote, picture-making faculty of the brain, or the, quote, mental capacity to make up ideas out of various other ideas, etc. This leaves no room for the divine revelation of the imagination given in Scripture and backed by human experience. So what is the imaginative experience from God's point of view. The true imagination is far more than mere picture-making functions of the brain or bundling concepts together in a brainstorm. The real imagination, the true imagination, is the, quote, intuition of the real. The apprehension of the heart and mind of that which is solid, good, and true, though not physically present to the senses. And this is always a manifestation of grace. To intuit is to know on a greater level than to merely comprehend with the natural mind alone. Aristotle denied any knowledge that, uh, except that which can be derived by observation. Plato, however, understood that knowledge could come not merely from empirical observation, but from beyond and above it, direct revelation of the invisible real. This was understood by Plato and many of the pagan philosophers as windows into supernature, coming down into nature. They were doing what Paul refers to in Acts chapter 17 when he spoke to the Greek audience, quoting one of their own poets. Paul reminds them, quote, God has made of one blood all nations who dwell upon the earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of the lands in which they are to live. He did this in order that they might possibly seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being 
as one of your own poets has said, we are God's offspring. The entire process implies grace, something good from outside us, coming to give to us what is needed in order to help us forward toward life. Paul then begins to speak to the Greeks about the true God, the, the one they made an empty shrine for, for which they dedicated to the unknown God. Paul quotes pagan poets whose intuition of the real gave them enough light to be aware that God is their creator and that in him they have their very existence. This grace coming down to them via their creative imaginations. Yet in their brokenness and willful rebellion, they turn this revelation from God and of God into idols, images first of men, then of beasts, and then finally creeping things, as you see in Romans chapter 1, where Paul goes on to describe there in Romans 1 that professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made with mere human hands. Their foolish hearts were darkened and their imaginations were perverted. So imagination is not just images, but it includes concepts. Of course, mental images are the primary thing we think of in reference to the imagination, but that's not the imagination alone. The true imagination can include vision, dream, revelation, or a converging of already known information into a meaningful whole never comprehended before. It can come by a word impressed upon the mind from the outside. It also includes poetic awe, as when a person suddenly is moved upon by natural beauty or wonder in such a way that the sight awakens a deeper, richer capacity for the heart to experience meaning that was present but had been ignored until the moment of the seeing. Here is where art, music, pictures, stories, become vitally connected to the imagination and are tools of training for the human soul in how to transcend mere mundane living and contact the invisible real. Sadly, that is also true of the dark invisible, which we'll address in different contexts. The true imagination doesn't necessarily refer to a religious experience, yet it always does manifest elements that are truly spiritual in nature. In other words, though it may not be a direct acting of the Holy Spirit upon a human soul, it is always the result of the goodness of God provided by him in the good of what he has created that moves the human soul toward the ultimate good, which is God himself. Jesus describes the heart of his Father as being one that gives sunlight and rain, which, by the way, are the greatest treasures of an agricultural world, upon both the good and the evil. God does not treat any of us as our own behaviors deserve. This is the image of the real God described by God himself in human form, when he was walking among us. 
Romans 1 is the anatomy of what we turn God into by our broken imaginations due to the hardness of our hearts. David refers to this crooked lens of our fallen imagination that misrepresents and then misunderstands God in Psalm 18, verses 25 and 26, where he says, To the merciful you will show yourself merciful. To the upright you show yourself upright. To the pure you show yourself to be pure. Now, this cannot just mean that if you are pure, that God will be pure to you, because it would then also mean that if you are impure, then God will just reciprocate by being impure towards you. No, that's not what it means. It means your own crooked heart will twist your image of God into a false form. Even this God responds to in mercy and love, because David goes on here to say, and to the evil, you will show yourself to be contrary. Unfortunately, the King James Version is very bad here. It says, to the froward, you will show yourself froward. There's two completely different Hebrew words here. <clears throat> and and uh, Jung's, Jung's translation, I like really well. He says, to the evil, you will show yourself contrary, or a wrestler. He uses the word wrestler, which is very close, very accurate to the Hebrew. Who will wrestle with you till you relent and do what is right and good? So that even to the evil, God's response to them <clears throat> of seeming contrariness to them is for their salvation and, re and restoration. Or here's the, 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 the message version. Good people taste your goodness. Whole people taste your health. True people taste your truth. Bad people can't figure you out. You take the side of the down and out, but the stuck up, you take down a peg. Here, uh, Peterson is, is, is grasping the poetic picture of the Hebrew very well. <clears throat> the idea is not so much that if you're good, God will be good to you. That's not it. It's that if your heart is seeking after God and are, are, is, is willing to take God for who he is, then your capacity to experience God will, uh, will, will open up. Grace will move into you in such a way that you are able to see the real God uh, for who he really is. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, we could do a whole study here on what the meaning of the pure in heart is, but let me tell you what it's not. The pure in heart are not those who have no sin, or none of us would be in the running. The, 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 the purpose here, the concept of the pure in heart, are those who are poor in spirit, those who know that they are uh, bankrupt, those who come to God and believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Then uh, he reveals himself. Jesus said in John 14, uh, who, whoever comes to me, uh, who, whoever believes my word and keeps my word, I will manifest myself to him. Whoever, whoever keeps my word, holds my word, treats my word with respect as if you believe it. Whoever does that, my father and I will manifest ourselves to him and we will come and make our home with him. 
John 14, 21 and 23. Now, a side note here, which is really not a side note, but a very pertinent point about the word God and the word good. This is very important to a holy imagination. In English, it so happens that our words God and good are, as you can hear, very closely related. So that there is a natural tendency in our ear to connect the two concepts. God is good. Now, why is our language that way? Without going into more detail than this session allows, we need to know that our English word for kind, merciful, is etymologically directly related to our English word for God. Both words are at their root uh, the same basic word. Whether English, Greek, or Hebrew, kindness, goodness, giving to another for reasons of blessing them, are all meaningless words representing meaningless actions if cut off from God himself. It's absolutely meaningless, not only in English, but in all languages, because it's true to reality. That when you speak of mercy, kindness, goodness, giving to another for for the purpose of salvaging them, That concept cut off from the concept of an eternal good God becomes a meaningless act. This is one reason why the the, the bumper sticker that is so popular you see here and there, do random acts of kindness. Well, there are no such things as random acts of kindness. And then some other versions of that include uh, uh, meaningless acts of love and random. There's, see, there's no such thing as random kindness. The randomness comes from our godlessness. And so we end up with this silly mixture of these bumper stickers. There's no random act of kindness. Acts of kindness come out of a heart focused on accomplishing a goal. And for God, that goal is the restoration, healing, deliverance, and uh, uh, salvaging of of all creation, and top of that, mankind. We act kindly to do others good, not because we fear God's wrath if we don't, but because God is kind and good to all. As Jesus said in Luke 6.35, where he says we're to love our enemies because God himself is kind and good to evil people. It's life-enhancing to follow God's lead. Our present term, goodbye, originally meant God be with you and became what we now normally say today, goodbye, God be with you. So the, the word good, the Hebrew word for mercy is chesed, translated the best we can into English, mercy. That's a very anemic translation. Chesed is far more than mere mercy, but mercy is pretty wonderful. Anyway, chesed slowly emerged into our present word for God. Maybe in future times together I can go into more detail as to etymologically how that occurred. I'm afraid it'll bore most of you, but to me it's fascinating. But suffice to to say now in the context of this study that our concept of goodness 
and our concept of God are not just similar in spelling or sound. They're similar because at their roots, they emerged from the same exact revelation. So when we say God is good, we're saying the same we're saying good is good, or we're saying God is God, or God is good. It's all the same thing. And I've already stated that uh, to speak of mercy, kindness, goodness, apart from God, becomes meaningless. And worse than meaningless, it actually historically can be proven to be uh, the root of causing mercy and kindness and goodness to be turned upside down and destroyed. Every government system, including our present one, which seeks to do good works without God, always ends up turning goodness into tyranny, cruelty, and the abuse of others, all in the name of goodness. Good and God are inseparable. So how does this speak to the proper understanding and function of the true imagination? Well, everything. Any and every imaginative enterprise that produces good will be life-enhancing, blessing, Celebrating and giving what is leading to wholeness, holiness, another English word that's connected because they're very closely related. So Isaiah 26, 3, he shall be kept in perfect peace whose mind, whose imagination is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. Philippians 4, 8, Paul probably uh, banking this thought off of Isaiah 26, it says, Fill your minds and meditate on things true and noble, reputable, authentic, gracious, compelling, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. That's the message rendering of Philippians 4.8. Now, did you notice he uses the word compelling in the message version of Philippians 4, 8. Why is he using the word compelling? Which word would he be using to express compelling? Well, it's the word excellence in the King James Version. Why would he use compel, excel, excellent? The idea here is what you think about will drive you in the direction of your thoughts. If you think about what is good... It will drive you toward the good. And since, as Jesus said in Luke 18, there is nothing good ultimately but God himself, then to think of the good in any form is to think of God. And to think about God should lead us to thinking of what is good. So if thinking about God leaves you feeling afraid or rejected or guilty or anxious or ashamed or any other number of negatives that religious guilt may have drilled into you in your past, then you need to greatly adjust your vision of what God is really like. He's not looking for ways to make you feel bad. He's not looking for ways to make you feel bad about yourself. He's not hoping to punish you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not angry at you. All his ways are good. Now, if that means he must correct you and even bring loving chastisement to you in order to make you good, he is, in his great goodness, willing to do that. But it will always be for your good. 
that you may end up with the results of his correction, as it's described in Hebrews 12, which is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. If you don't have such loving correction modeled in your early life by a loving father or father substitute, then it's easy for your imagination to form false images of God, of correction, and of all of life. So the first rule of order in receiving the good of the true imagination is to make a full break with all concepts of God which make him the problem. He's not ever our problem. But that's an entire subject all of its own. Still, it's so vital to life itself and certainly to this particular study that if it is your problem, then stop right here and begin dealing with it before you go on in the rest of this study. And make it the main issue of your life until it's healed in you. For as A.W. Tozer said, quote, what we think when we think of God is the most important thing about us. It's the foundation of all other things. If it's off, everything else will be off. When it's corrected, the entire building will grow up straight and strong. So let's stop here just for a moment and pray. Father, I, I bring to you the man, the woman, listening to this study who has just discovered that they can't move forward in the holy imagination because ultimately they don't ever see anything good because ultimately they don't think you are good. In some area of life, disappointment or hurt or trauma or some encounter with evil has left them scarred and wounded and left scar tissue on the, on the eyes of their heart. So I'm asking you, Father, to heal their eyes of their heart. I pray the prayer that Paul prayed for us in Ephesians 1, that you would grant the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that the eyes of our heart would be flooded with light, that we will be able to comprehend the height, the depth, the breadth, the length, to come to know the love of God that surpasses mere human information about you, that we might be filled with all the fullness of you. In Jesus' name. Please take time to continue to pursue this. Go back over that list I just listed. It's certainly not a complete list, but it'll get you started. Anytime thinking of God makes you feel opposite of good, makes you feel burdened, oppressed, lonely, fearful, self-hating, self-rejecting, it's not God causing that. And not only is he not causing it, but he's always reaching to you in ways that you're not noticing, you're not catching it. See, to the, to the crooked, everything looks crooked. To the impure, everything looks impure. And so, you know, you have to, you have to do some real, uh, honest appraising of your heart before the Lord and just begin to, uh, you know, God's never condemning you. You, you may be condemning him. He's never angry at you. You may be angry at him. And so you think he's angry at you because you're, you're seeing him through your wounded eyes. 
and he'll help you. Well, um, I, I told you that I wanted to spend a little more time in this session on the goodness of God coming to us through nature and then through the arts and uh, through the gifts of the Spirit. And I want to just get, uh, in order to, to do that, the best way to do it is to illustrate it, I guess, with stories that, that really do uh, present the, the, the reality of this in a way that your heart will remember, because that's the whole point. We remember stories and visions and songs and uh, movies. We, we, we remember those. When Jesus wanted to get important truths across, he didn't do a theological lecture. He told stories. And uh, when I say that God comes to us through nature, again, referring to Romans 1, that uh, God has revealed himself through the things that he has made. I just got a text on my phone just a few minutes ago from a very close friend who uh, is, uh, uh, he took a picture of the front tree, in, in uh, the tree in his front yard, beautiful fall dazzling leaves and he just wrote me a little text that says uh, isn't it wonderful how God was so thoughtful to make the world beautiful he could have made it black and white and uh, just just that one fact you know God God didn't just do green he did a thousand shades of green you know uh, oh, oh, anyway I could go off on that for a long time but the one story that illustrates this to me better than any I've ever heard, and it always tends to make my eyes wet, is a story our friend Jonathan Hunter told about something that happened to him a few years ago when he was on his way uh, on vacation to Northern California. He left Los Angeles and was driving up to the north of the state, and he saw this beautiful breathtakingly beautiful Japanese garden park area. And he thought, you know, this is this is too beautiful to drive past. It would be a sin to just drive past it and say, isn't that nice? So he drove into it and he walked over into the green area and there was a bench there. Beautiful, sunlit, warm day. He lies down on the bench and uh, begins to just kind of soak in the surroundings and doze a little bit. And just about the time he's beginning to really get into the zone of, of the beauty of it all, it begins to be slowly infiltrated by the approaching sound of a thumping bass guitar and somebody's loud, loud stereo. Uh, playing uh, something that some people call music. It was total opposite of the atmosphere of the garden. And he thought, this doesn't sound good and it doesn't sound safe. And as he lay there wondering what to do, the music got loud enough for him to realize they had pulled up into the area right by his own car. And then he began to really feel afraid as he heard several voices. And so he knew this was, this was a group of young men. 
and uh, he didn't know what was going to happen. And he lay there with his heartbeat speeding up and trying to pray about what to do. He became also aware that one of these young men had walked near him. And so his imagination, at its worst, was running wild with him, wondering what's about to happen. When he heard the voice of the young black man say, evidently as he is too looking at the beauty around him, this makes me want to live. And Jonathan opened his eyes and realized that he was not the object of this young man's focus. In fact, he was practically invisible to this young kid because as he was looking around at the beauty and the the grandeur and the glory of this place, without even realizing he was giving praise to God, this young man said, this makes me want to live. God has revealed himself in nature. Paul says, as we quoted a while ago in Acts chapter 17, God set the boundaries for the nations and placed them where they are in the hopes that that might provide for each nation means by which they might begin to grope after God and reach toward God because God is always reaching toward them. He wanted them to reach back, so he manifested and provided for them various uh, uh, versions of national life. But what did those nations do? Instead of reaching after God and groping after God, they began to make covenants with principalities and powers. So you have various nations who have made covenants with demons and fallen angels and sacrificed to them and and given uh, uh, various forms of worship to them, and this is how all the various religions of the world emerged. And so instead of reaching after God, who is always reaching after them, they reached toward the lesser and even the opposite of God. But here you have a picture of nature as an evangelist, reaching the heart of what seems to be the unreachable. And uh, we could tell many other versions of that story, but that, that story is so profound and it says everything that needs to be said so well that I'm going to leave it at that. Nature as the evangelist to the heart. I do know one other story that Mary loves to tell, and I'll tell it since she's not in here at present, but we heard this testimony of a, uh, a scientist, Japanese scientist who was an atheist. And uh, his little girl was born, and uh, she was sitting in his lap, and he was looking at her little fingers and her little toes. And he just sat and contemplated her little toes. And as he did, his spirit opened, his mind opened, his heart opened, and he bowed to the creative genius that made those little toes and asked God into his life and eventually came to know Christ. 
Now, you know, sometimes this is way too large a subject to get into here, but I'm just going to mention it for maybe future reference. There's this tug of war uh, philosophically going on in the culture, especially in Christian circles and religious circles, over the modern versus postmodern. And much of the church is concerned about what it what what's called postmodern rejection of truth. And there is valid reason to be concerned when in postmodern church services, there's no scripture, there's no preaching, there's no reference to revelatory authority. Everything is touchy feely. It's so it's so touchy feely that. Uh, I've known people in their mid twenties who have left such churches and said, "I can't, I can't bear it. I feel like I'm drowning in everybody else's emotions." So there's valid concern about that. But I'll tell you, on the other end of the spectrum, this scientist, this Japanese scientist I just talked about, is a perfect example of one steeped in the doctrine of modernism, steeped in uh, the authority of science. Now, he could have been steeped in the authority of, of uh, Scripture uh, in a legalistic way, I mean. If he could have been a, a religionist and been just as cut off from his heart as he was as a scientist. And the Holy Spirit bypasses what modernism exalts as authoritative, whether it's the, the scientific world exalting empirical information or the religious world exalting exalting authoritative information. And I'm not at all denigrating the authority of Scripture. I'm just saying it's possible to make Scripture uh, such an authoritative concept in the mind and yet totally disregard what Scripture tells you to do, which is seek the Lord with all your heart and listen to His voice and obey that voice. Or... Uh, claim sola scriptura while ignoring any scripture you don't like, like forbid not to speak with tongues. We, we'll just ignore that scripture or place it in some dispensation we don't, where we don't have to deal with it and still claim we're sola scriptura. <laughs> anyway, I'm probably talking about stuff most of you don't know what I'm talking about and don't care. But anyway, uh, the Holy Spirit bypassed the cognitive function of the brain and went straight to the heart, which is what art does. It's what nature does. It's what beautiful things do. Dostoevsky said beauty can save the world. Now, we know there's a dark side to beauty. We know that there's an evil mis misuse and manipulation of beauty. How many of us have known beautiful women who seemed beautiful till they opened their mouth? Or men who seemed very attractive and handsome until we heard them speak. And the minute what came out, comes out of their mouth from their heart is manifested, all their physical beauty vanishes and you're happy to be away from them. So Dostoevsky's not talking about that kind of beauty. He's talking about the beauty that can save the world. We, we've already referred to Alexander Solzhenitsyn's conversion, which took place on his back lying on rotted straw of a gulag prison cell when uh, goodness and truth had vanished from his world. But he said, could it be, as he looked out the window and saw a flash of a, a, a ray of light coming down through a dark gray sky, and his heart melted. 
And he said, maybe Dostoevsky was right, that when goodness and truth seem to have died away, the work of goodness and truth can be accomplished by sheer beauty. That beauty can wrap around the fallen goodness and the dissipated, rejected truth and do the work of all three. That's what was happening in this Japanese scientist, and that's what was happening in that uh, gang member who said when he saw the beauty around him, this makes me want to live. Everything in the heart of God is about that. See, this young gang member, who I'm sure never probably set foot in a church, maybe never had any encounter with anything religious, had just spoken the ultimate revelation of uh, the heart of God, that God has created the earth and made it beautiful and made all things beautiful in their time in order that, in hopes that we might reach after him and seek after him, though he is not far from all of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Same thing is true in the arts. In fact, the arts the arts are really such a large subject. I'm going to have to do a whole session just on literature and the arts. And we'll, we'll do a whole session on motion pictures, particularly because it's the one medium that has the capacity to bring together so many of the other aspects in one, in one art form. I mean, what other art form can have story, art, image, symbol, acting, music, and, and story all in one presentation? So that's it, why, it's why the devil has spent so much of his energies seeking to take over Hollywood and, uh, the, the battle for Hollywood is on in the spirit world right now. And we'll talk about that more later. But I want to move on now to uh, understanding the images and symbols as being symbolic, not as being literal. In other words, you have to know how to understand and interpret the symbols if you don't, if you take everything as literal, you'll miss the point. I'm going from a sublime, beautiful, wonderful subject now to something more mundane and a little less moving, but still necessary to get into this particular message because when people begin to understand how the heart sees and how the heart is moved by image and symbol and story and dream and vision. And they begin to move in the holy imagination. They begin to move in the healing gifts of the Spirit. Uh, there's a danger for of them, uh, if, especially if they do it alone without the benefit of other brothers and sisters who are moving with them in it. They can, they can get real bogged down. Uh, the best way I can illustrate that is... Uh, Acts chapter 16, you know the story probably, where uh, they try to go into uh, one area of Asia and the Holy Spirit says, no, no, you don't go. So they change direction and begin to go another way and the Lord, the Holy Spirit says, no, you don't go that way either. And you see, if they had been literalists and legalists, they would have said, We're not, we don't care what, what 
the voice in our head is saying. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So by golly, we're going to do that. We don't care what anybody says, even the head of the church. <laughs> but there, see, the, the book of Acts doesn't go into any detail. It doesn't go into a great explanation of, well, how did they know God said don't go? Uh, who was it that said God said don't go? It just takes for granted that, that anybody reading the story understands that though we have a, a command to go into all the world, we also have a relationship with our commander who oversees our individual life movements and directions. And they just, un, you know, the, the writers of, of the book of Acts, Luke, he just understands that. You, you, surely you understand that. So he didn't go into any details about it. No, we have to get 2,000 years past it and get bogged down with all of our stuff that we're bogged down with to have to try to figure out, well, what do they mean? Well, anyway... I think I better just read it. Acts 16, verse 6 and following, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Uh, that's just wonderful, fascinating. Anyway, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to uh, Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Afterwards, she was baptized in her household as well. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us to do that. Now, you know what... Uh, uh, I, I know people. I know people who have done this. So I'm not just making this up. They would have said, uh, th "No, this can't be the right place. Your vision had a man in it. This this is a bunch of women. There was a man in your vision that said, come over and help us.' See. And so, how how do you how do you learn to interpret? Uh, all these symbols, you learn by doing. You learn by doing, and you learn by studying the scriptures, and you learn by getting familiar with the heart of God. See, I read this story, and this, this story gives me a lot of insight into how to properly interpret certain things. Not A, B, C. See, we always want line for line, A, B, C must mean A, B, C. 
and we want it all to line up exactly. And so you get in all kind of strange conversations with people who have had dreams. You know, God help the pastor who's got people in their in his congregation who have dreams about him. And they all want to tell him what they dreamed about him. When most of the time, maybe all of the time, he simply represents something in their dream about them that he represents. It's not about him and he's supposed to alter his life's work to line up with their interpretation of the dream that they had about him. I mean, sometimes it may be about him, but if it is, there'll be other ways for that to be confirmed than just one dream somebody had. I've known many Christians whose life work was thrown way off track and even shipwrecked because of not understanding how to walk these principles out scripturally and with discernment and understanding the symbols. Well, another example that I want to give you of of uh, the, the, the corporate nature of the holy imagination at work in the people of God, because most of the scriptures we tend to quote, you know this, most of the scriptures we tend to quote with reference to uh, the mind of Christ, for instance. Paul says, you have the mind of Christ. We think that you is singular. You have the mind of Christ. But the you in the Greek is plural. Paul's not saying you individually have the mind of Christ. He's saying you all together have the mind of Christ. They all together in Acts 16 discerned the mind of the Lord as to what they were supposed to do. They all together discerned how to minister to the women by the river. They all together heard the Lord. See, this is why we we really are in trouble if we don't have fellowship of some kind. I know many of you who hear this are alone. Uh, it breaks my heart when I think of how many of you are in outposts where your fellowship is very limited, but even if you only have one or two or three other people, or even if you have to do it uh, uh, you know, across uh, a, t- uh, uh, a Skype screen or, or telephone, there's got to be uh, one or two other people in your life that you pray with, that you wrestled through these things with, that you talk through things with, because uh, we are not ever individually given the whole picture. And the reason the Lord does, I mean, God can give you the whole picture, of course, for heaven's sakes, but we God does it corporately because he wants us to become interdependent and respectful of one another and love one another, among other things. But anyway, um, I tell this particular story because it's so it's so exemplary, exemplary of, of what I'm trying to get across. Years ago, when I first began this ministry, walking out the demands of this ministry, I was part of a team that was uh, asked to come minister to a, a group of Roman Catholic priests who were serious about bringing the gospel in its fullness to the Roman Church, uh, and uh, we we had the privilege of ministering to 50 priests in this gathering, and we were praying over them, and one of the men had a strange skin tone that was troublesome to several of us. We thought, you know, he really looks poorly, like he could leave us any minute, and he wasn't an old man at all. He's, you know, in his middle age. 
And when it came time to pray for him, I and several other people began to get very strong pictures in our mind. And the pictures were, uh, when we all put them together, it made no sense to us. Uh, one of us saw a witch's cauldron. Uh, somebody else saw the number seven. Somebody else got the number 50. Uh, somebody else saw, uh, I think if I remember right, a church steeple with a shroud over it. And uh, there were a couple of other pictures. But when we all finally got the gumption to speak out what we were seeing, uh, the man began to emotionally respond. And he said, look, everything, everything you people are seeing is exactly right. He said, I know what all those symbols mean. Now, if we'd been left to ourselves individually, we would have thought, well, so I see a seven. Whoop-dee-doo. What does that mean? It means nothing. Oh, I see a witch's cauldron. Well, it's October. I mean, I've got something on my mind about Halloween. It doesn't mean anything. No. Uh, this man explained to us, he said, when I was seven years old, for some unknown reason, our priest in our local parish invited a practicing fortune teller to come to our church uh, harvest celebration and tell fortunes over people. He said, I, I know how ridiculous that is in the ears of Christians to hear that anybody could be that ignorant or that foolish or that disobedient to Scripture, but he said he was. And he said, uh, he told my father that uh, he would not live past 50 and then he turned to me, or she, she turned to me and said, when you reach your father's age, you will follow in his footsteps. What meaning? You're, you're going to die too. It's hard to comprehend anybody could sit back and let this witchcraft go. But, you know, anyway. Uh, so there's your shroud over the church steeple. And there's your, uh, there's your, your death, your witch's cauldron. And there's the number seven, and there's the number 50. He said, my father died at eight, the next year. He said, my, my father died at the age of 50. And he said, uh, I, I turned 50 this year. And death was already working in his body. He was, he was turning gray. I don't mean hair. I mean his skin was turning lavender, just gray, greenish gray. And then we knew what to do. We, we broke the curse. We commanded the spirit of death to relinquish its hold on this man. And uh, he was visibly different before the prayer time was over. He was manifestly different the next morning. And he was uh, just a different person altogether by the end of the week. And uh, it's been years and years that that happened, and it was many years later that I got word that he was still prospering and going forward in his ministry. But the point is, uh, the true imagination in this particular manifestation of it was coming to corporate, 
the corporate body of believers who were gathered together seeking the Lord for the same purpose, and yet everybody's pictures were different, and yet every picture was part of the whole picture that made sense. And when you have a a group of believers who are seeking the Lord about some major issue, whether it's local or, or national or related to the church or whatever it is, then you greatly multiply your capacity to get the full wisdom and counsel of God when you're willing to submit to one another and most of all, submit to the Lord in one another and hear from Him. This is why small prayer groups are so important. And I want to say to those of you who don't have a, a really viable church life expression where this kind of uh, function of the spirit is is even acknowledged much less practiced then it's it's really within the bounds of good reason to gather with two or three other people or two or three couples or whoever and begin to regularly practice this kind of prayer and this kind of listening well i hope these little snapshots of the Holy Spirit speaking through nature, the Holy Spirit speaking in the corporate body, the Holy Spirit speaking in the arts. And again, I said I was going to address the arts in this time together, but in order to do it justice, I need to give an entire an entire time to it. Uh, you see, this is not unreasonable. It is we have to stop thinking in terms of reason versus imagination or head versus heart or masculine versus feminine or word versus spirit. This kind of dichotomized thinking is perpetrating a disintegration instead of manifesting an integration. And that's why David said, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. God's not interested in disintegration. He's interested in integrating, bringing together wholeness, which is holiness.